I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Yeah, we're good to go. So here's what we're going to do today. Let me explain uh, very briefly. Um, and, and if you're ever watching my streams and you're like, you jump in and you're 10 minutes in, you're five minutes in, and you're like, what's he talking about? Back up to the first like minute or two of my stream. And I'll tell you what the stream's about. And then you could jump back with us and you'll track with us. Um, I always front load with the topic we're talking about today. So here's the topic today. Um, sometimes as Christians, we're talking to people about the evidence for the Christian faith. And we hear stuff that just sounds, in a word, nutty. It just sounds nuts. But we don't have an answer for it because I've never heard that before. I've never heard that objection to Christianity before. So I don't have any way to respond to it. Um, and that's why I make videos. Like I'm giving you answers to those sometimes nutty objections and sometimes just misinformed things. Today, the objection is this. The objection to Christian faith is that Paul didn't know much about Jesus. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but but think it through for a second. If Paul the Apostle really didn't know who Jesus was, maybe he was just making things up in his letters. Or maybe he, he, was, he was just sort of talking about a whole different Jesus than the guy they're talking about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we have these theories some, some people throw out there about there being two different sort of Jesuses. The Jesus of Paul, the Jesus of, of the Gospels, and stuff like that. There, anyway, this stuff gets pretty hairy pretty quickly, but it's all based upon one idea that we can examine very easily and we'll do it today. The idea is, what did Paul, based upon the letters of Paul, what did Paul know about Jesus historically? What can we say Paul knew about Jesus? Um, so we're going to do that today. We'll be going through the scriptures of Paul's writings to look at what he said about Jesus and welcome if this is your first time. Um, my name is Mike Winger and I'm a pastor in Southern California. I do videos on theology and apologetics. I do Bible teaching. I also do the defense of the Christian faith and I kind of do a mixture of different things. I'm currently preparing for a debate on the resurrection of Jesus with uh, uh, an atheist coming on April 11th with Matt Dillahunty um, and that'll be on the, uh, the YouTube channel Capturing Christianity. Um, but in that prep, I'm taking some of the items I'm prepping for and I'm making videos that might be useful to you because somebody out there, you, you just Googled, right? Or YouTube searched, what did Paul know about Jesus? And this video hopefully popped up and is going to give you exactly what you need. So here we go. Let's bring up the scriptures um, and they're not there. Where's my logos Bible? Okay, hold up. I got this. I got this. Poof. Magic. Not, not real magic. Don't. No, just like, ooh, cool. That kind. All right. Um... We're going to be going through the verses. I'm going to actually put them on the screen for you so you can see for yourself what it was that Paul wrote about Jesus and how we can pull historical details about the life of Jesus, uh, at least to say this is what Paul thought was the case, and then we can confirm those things with other sources and all that, yada, yada. It'll be good. You'll enjoy it. We'll all have a fantastic time, and uh, you know, make sure you stay awake, have some coffee. All right. What do I need to tell you first? Oh, one thing before we get into the actual text of Scripture. We're going to be looking at epistles. What's an epistle, you say? Epistle is just a fancy way of saying a letter. We're looking at letters of Paul the Apostle. He wrote several in our New Testament, and they're from a real historical guy named Paul the Apostle. If you doubt that, that's a whole different video I'm not doing today, um, but you're alone, <laughs> generally speaking, yeah. No one doubts that. But um, but these letters, these, these epistles from Paul, they're not gospels. They're about the gospel sometimes. They'll contain the gospel, like Romans especially, right? But they're not gospels, meaning they're not biographies of Jesus' life and teachings, 
Rather, they're letters answering specific issues. How does this weigh into our discussion of what Paul knew about Jesus? Well, um, generally speaking, the Gospels are going to give you more teaching material about Jesus than Paul is because he's dealing with issues in the local church. He's dealing with problems that are arising and confused doctrinal issues. He's not giving them the teachings of Jesus because, as you'll see Paul's letters, they already had the teachings of Jesus. He might refer to them, but he's not giving them in a fresh way. So we don't expect the epistles to quote Jesus necessarily verbatim or to talk a whole lot about the historical Jesus because that's stuff people already know. He's dealing with issues in the local church. Now, you might say, Mike, you're just making this up. This is ad hoc. But no, there's actually evidence for this. Let me give you an example. Um, the epistles of John, John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, these were all written after the gospel of John. That's that's typically agreed. In fact, let me quote to you a, a scholar who's a lot smarter than me, uh, Craig Blomberg. Uh, in his book, um, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, page 284, he says the following. It is typically agreed that the epistle of John came later than the fourth gospel and was written by someone who had full knowledge of the gospel, yet one finds no quotations or unambiguous allusions to Jesus's words in first, second, or third John. So John, it was written later, these letters, but they're not even, and the, and the guy knew the gospels, that's clear from the texts themselves, but he doesn't quote the words of Jesus in there because this, the nature of epistles is they're different than gospels. But let's not take this too far, right? I'm not saying that we get nothing about the life of Jesus in the letters of Paul. That's what a lot of times I hear skeptics say. I heard recently as I was preparing for my debate, I listened to Matt Dillahunty and it was a clip of him saying that pretty much all Paul gives it. Now I'm paraphrasing here. He said more than this, I'm sure. I'm not trying to quote him. Um, but he said pretty much, you know, the apostle Paul gives us the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and that's it. And um, that's not it actually. So let's look at the, the specific scriptures and we'll see um, that there's something to learn from here, not only about Jesus, but about the historicity of the contents of the of the New Testament as well. So here we go. Welcome to the Tuesday live stream. Um, by the way, if you have questions, you can put those in the chat. And uh, my buddy AJ is going to try to send those to me if I can find my phone. After I finish getting through this teaching portion, I'm going to teach through these scriptures. Then I'll take your guys' questions. And I prefer one question per person just to keep it down and let as many people ask questions as possible. And also, I love questions that are that are kind of poking at my case here, challenging me, asking me to, to uh, maybe ask, uh, ask a question that kind of makes you say, prove yourself here, Mike. You know, that, that's, that's good stuff in my opinion. All right, so here we go. First place we're going to go to is um, Galatians 4.4. What do we get from Galatians 4.4? Well, this is one of the letters of Paul, and he writes um, content that tells us that Jesus was, in fact, a Jewish man. What am I saying here? Well, let's just read the passage. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, it's important that Jesus was a man, like an actual human being, because some people will say that Paul's talking about, and I mean, I mean some here, like very, very few kind of fringe groups say Jesus was like this sort of heavenly being up in the sky somewhere and, um, or on the moon or whatever. But Paul's talking here in Galatians uh, 4, 4, that Jesus was actually like a human being who was born of a woman. So he's a human and he's born under the law, which means he's Jewish. Jesus was a Jewish guy. That's what Paul is saying here. Now we can, we can couple this with more information from Romans 15 verse 8, where it says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Christ became a servant of the circumcised. Now, I don't want to miss real quick that 
Paul thinks that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, who's fulfilling the Old Testament promises. That's something he believes that Jesus historically did. Um, and and the Jews didn't think that Messiah was going to be in some faraway place off the earth and some space mountain or whatever. Rather, they thought the Messiah was going to come in and amongst them. And, and so that's another piece of evidence for the historicity there. But um, but here he's a servant to the circumcised. See, Jesus, he not only was a Jew, but he he um, he specially served the Jewish people through the life that he lived. Circumcised refers to being under the law. Uh, another thing we learn, number the number two thing we learn is that Jesus was not just a, a good a, a Jewish person, but he was a good man. He was a godly man. Let's go to Second Corinthians chapter five, verse twenty one. 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, truthfully, I, I'm quoting 2 Corinthians here, but those of you who know Paul's writings, like you know the New Testament's pretty consistent about the, it's completely consistent about the perfection and godliness and holiness of Jesus Christ. Um, obviously, Paul, from many of his writings, is talking about how Jesus was perfect, he was sinless, he was good. And so this is something he's saying. He's saying this, let's not miss it, about Jesus' actual life that he lived on earth. He lived a perfect life. That's what he's saying. Um, but there's more. Jesus was not just a Jew, but he was specifically a descendant of David. This is from Romans 1.3. Um, it says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. It, it could hardly be more clear here that Paul is saying Jesus had a physical body that was the result of lineage from David. And so he's he's Davidic and he's of the, of the tribe of Judah in particular. And so Jesus here, he has he's from David. Now, um, we can go one step further. Um, we'll go to Galatians 3.16, where it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. These are speaking about Old Testament promises that were given to Abraham and his children that, that were like the, the carriers of the scriptures. Um, it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So clearly Paul thinks Jesus is the Messiah. And here clearly he thinks that Christ, Messiah, same title, different ones, Hebrew ones, Greek in origin, Messiah and Christ, same thing. So he thinks that the Messiah is a descendant of Abraham. So he calls Jesus a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David in his writings. Um, there's more. Specifically, that Jesus had disciples. This is in First uh, Corinthians fifteen five, and I don't just mean any disciples. Like it's one thing to say he had disciples, but he had twelve special disciples, twelve special, unique individuals who were like somehow. Well, let's read it, and then I'll tell you the significance of it. Because this tie. Notice how all these things tie together with the Gospels. The Gospels are right on the same page here as everything Paul is saying about Jesus. So we're not talking about two different Jesuses, but I'm just getting started. There's a lot more information to take in here. 1 Corinthians 15.5 says, And then he appeared to Cephas, that would be Peter. Uh, that's just the like Aramaic you know, form of his name. And then to the twelve. So it's speaking here about Jesus died, he was buried, he rose, and then he appeared to who? To Peter, and then to the twelve. A group appearance of Christ to a group called the twelve. And they're so well known that as far as Paul's concerned, they're just he's just going to call them the twelve. What's interesting is... Well, that's another that's another video. Interesting stuff about the phrase of the twelve here in First Corinthians fifteen five, but it, it'll take me off topic. So, um, these these things are telling us that the same Jesus that's being preached in the Gospels is being preached by Paul. This is no surprise to Christians or to those who've just read the the scriptures, but it might be a surprise to those who've 
you've gone looking for maybe skeptical uh, reasons to doubt Christianity, and you started to think that Paul could be sort of positioned against the scriptures, the rest of the Bible. Um, Paul and and the other rest of the early church are somehow in conflict here, but yet we're getting the same content from both sides about Jesus. And it's a lot more than just death, burial, resurrection. Um, although that's kind of important that that's in there. Um, so these 12, we read from other places in the scripture, as I did a video last time about, my last live stream about, um, that these these were witnesses who were guaranteeing the truthfulness of the of the resurrection appearances. And Paul refers to them too. So there was a resurrection. There were 12 who were, who were guarantors that these resurrection events actually happened, that Jesus rose and that he was seen by these guys. That's a, kind of a big deal. Um, in fact, if we read a little bit more in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll get more clarity on this. So it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, uh, that Jesus was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now he's paralleling what he sees with what they saw. This is a side thing. I'm going to do a whole other video one day on what did Paul see when he saw Jesus. I think it's a really important thing to talk about, and it will factor into resurrection discussions when you're talking about the evidence for the resurrection. Um, so that'll come later. But here the bottom line is, Jesus had special disciples whom he appeared to after he had he had died. Paul thinks this about Jesus. This is part of Paul's version of the historical Jesus. And it goes back to, catch this, before the Gospels were written. That's right, Paul's letters are before the Gospels. So we can't say he got this from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because he's writing it before they do. Rather, if he has the same content they have, we have independent attestation to the truthfulness of those things. Pretty neat stuff. Um... There's more. Jesus, uh, he was a, a man who lived well. Uh, this is in support of a, a point I made earlier, but I'll share it with you anyways, because I just want to get these scriptures there for you to have. You may want to share them with somebody. Um, Philippians 2.6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, he... He, he's like this humble man who comes, verse 8, being, uh, being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, he suffered a crucifixion death specifically after living a humble, godly life. These are obviously, his, these are historical claims about Jesus. They have theological importance, huge, huge theological importance. But they're claims about what Jesus actually did in real history. Okay, let's get, let's get to a fun one. Um, although some are going to disagree with me here, but I think uh, wrongly so. Galatians 1.19, Jesus had brothers. Jesus had brothers. Now, some who would say that Paul the Apostle is imagining this sort of ethereal, like, space Jesus. I don't mean to... Well, no, I do. I mean to make it sound silly, because it is silly. I just want it to sound like it is. It's, it's, it's silly. Some space Jesus, right, out there in the sky. Um for those who want to say that, like, it's hard to explain how Jesus had brothers and they will try to explain it. Their explanations are not good. I'm not going to get into that whole debate, but I will share a few scriptures that support this idea. Galatians 1:19. but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. This is, this is where he actually calls out not only that Jesus had brothers, but the name of the guy, his name was James. He was the Lord's brother. Um, also, this is supported uh, in first Corinthians nine, five. Where it says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the, and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
there are these leaders in the church and James, it turns out by based on Acts, James is one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem in particular. He's in Acts 1.15, we read about how James is there and he's praying with Mary and he's one of the brothers of the Lord. So um, there's just this consistent like interconnected confirmation that Jesus had brothers right? That, that Mary had other kids after Jesus was born. Matthew 13, 55 actually calls out James specifically. I'll, I'll just give you that verse. And it says, uh, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So we have other, other scriptures that support that Jesus had brothers. But what we're saying here is not just that he had brothers. We're saying Paul thought Jesus had brothers. That's what we're saying. And that this is obviously not true of, of, of space Jesus. We're talking about like real, literal, on the earth, you know, acting, living, uh, dying, rising Jesus. Okay. And here's another one for you. First Corinthians uh, 11. This is where Paul the Apostle is going to get into um, not only an event of Jesus's life, but he's actually going to be sort of quoting gospels before they're written. Think about that. He's basically quoting the gospels before they're thought to have been written. What does that imply about the data in there? I mean, the gospels were not compiled by Paul's writings. There are some who would say that that's anyway, that's a whole different issue. Um, But first Corinthians 11, 23 Here it is. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice this on the night he was betrayed. So Jesus, he's having a Passover meal, Passover-like meal here. 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about it. He was betrayed by somebody who who would have had to have been close to him. I mean, people can't betray you unless they're loyal to you first, right? So someone loyal to him betrayed him on that night. Right. And then on that night, he takes this whole idea of Passover. Right. And he breaks the bread after giving thanks. This is actually the same order we get in the three gospels who the synoptic gospels who have this first. He thanks, then he breaks the bread and then he tells him what it, what it means. Now it's my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He tells him to do it in the future as well. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this is the cup. Uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this is, um, this is neat. Like this is pretty neat stuff. Like we can't say that Paul just kind of had these vague notions of a Jesus that may or may not have even been a physical human. No, he's talking about the actions of Jesus on the night of his death. And he gets it so close to the gospels that you, you can't say that these are talking about two different things. Um, too many coincidences. There's too many coincidences. And that's what happens is those who want to like sort of chop suey the Bible into pieces and say Paul is in contradiction with the other with the other writings. Um, they, they, they have to come up with weird, you know, explanations ad hoc, like basically ad hocs when you make up an explanation without evidence, just to get away from a conclusion you don't want, you know, that's and that's what happens. You get all these weird, almost conspiracy theories, like you'd expect the you know, the, all the maps on the background with the yarn and the string going, you know, like conspiracy type stuff. That's what it sounds like. Um, but there's more. First Thessalonians 2.14. It says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. The Jews 
okay, we're not talking about all Jews here, right? But there were, there were certain Jews that were persecuting the church. I mean, the early church was Jews. So Jews goes both ways here, but there were Jews who were persecuting the early church. They were attacking Christians. And look at what Paul says about those exact people who were in Jerusalem attacking the early church. He says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. Paul gives credit to the same people who killed Jesus as being the same ones that drove them out of the synagogues in the early church. Meaning that that the people who killed Jesus aren't on the moon, okay? They're, I hate to have to inter- interact with this, but they're on the earth. They're right here. They're doing it in Jerusalem. And now the people that he's writing to in First Thessalonians are experiencing similar things from their own countrymen, just like he had experienced and, and the early church experienced from their countrymen, which were the ones who killed Jesus. So this is just speaking that saying the human hands who killed Jesus are the ones who later persecuted the, the, uh, the early church. Um, let's look at another one. First um, Timothy 6.13. It says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Jesus had a testimony before Pontius Pilate. So this is a claim that Christ even the specific Roman governor, this guy Pontius Pilate, he was the governor of Rome, and Rome was, they were controlling uh, Israel at the time. It was one government in control of another. Well, they wanted to get Jesus killed. They don't have the authority and power to do it. So the Jewish courts brought him to Pilate to get Pilate, the Roman governor, to give him the death penalty because he had the power to do that. Well, Paul, he uh, he connects with this as well. And we actually get this confirmed through extra-biblical sources in addition, which we don't need, but it's nice to have things you don't need. Um Okay, let me give you another one. This is a whole other line of reasoning. Okay, Jesus, he, he taught a lot of stuff, right? Um, uh, one way to show that Paul was familiar with the historical Jesus, not only in the details of Jesus' life in, 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 the, in the Passover and things like that, but the specific teachings of Jesus Paul was familiar with, and he alludes to those teachings in his, in his, uh, in his writings. And his writings are from before the Gospels, meaning that that teaching goes back to Jesus. That's the implication of it. I think it's 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 pretty profound. So 1 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says this, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. Now here, he's, he's talking, remember, there was this total controversy in the first century uh, in Judaism, not amongst Greeks, not amongst Romans, but amongst Jews. There was controversy over marriage specifically. Herod the Great had done... Uh, Basically, uh, Herod Antipas, I think it was. Was it Antipas? I always get all the Herods mixed up. There's a bunch of guys named Herod, by the way. Uh, but one of the Herods, he had married um, basically illegally against Jewish custom. He got divorced and married. And there was a debate in, at the time raging amongst the, the different classes of religious leaders. Was that okay? Was that not okay? When Jesus gets asked about marriage, he weighs in on it. And he's like, yeah, don't get divorced. That's wrong. And here... Paul seems to be quoting this, and he even says it's from the Lord. Not I, but the Lord. This is from the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But there's a lot more. If we compare um, other places where Paul writes, we can see echoes of Jesus in the things Paul writes. So let's look at Romans for a second. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 14, Paul has this instruction for the church. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Does that sound familiar? We're going to bless those who persecute us, bless them and do not curse them. Well, in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28, 
Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So Jesus is, is saying something that Paul seems to be echoing in Romans 12, 14. Then in Romans 12, 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all men. What is honorable in the sight of all men? Well, in Matthew 5, uh, chapter, th- chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is, the idea here is that we're, we're, we're seeing connections between Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching. Paul seems to be carrying on the teaching of Jesus as he's giving instructions to the church, um, even if he doesn't give them an exact, always exact quotes. There's connection between the two. Here's another example from Romans. Romans 13, 7. Paul says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The principle behind the statement is like, if you owe something to someone, you pay it to them. But he specifically starts and ends with taxes and then ends with honor. And so um, connect this to the teaching of Jesus. Jesus was uh, caught up in another debate. Uh, there was several times where Jesus was involved. This is kind of the Jewishness of the, of the New Testament, where some of the things they debate and they're re- that are really big issues to Jesus and to the Pharisees and stuff around him, they were not big issues to people outside Judea during that time. Um, but here's one of those examples. Uh, paying taxes to Caesar is something that was very controversial at the time, and they decide to try to bring this debate to Jesus. So it says they came to him, and I'll go to Mark 12, 14. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They're, they're kind of trying to trap him like, we know you'll only say the truth, Jesus, so we're going to make you weigh in on this because no matter what Jesus says, he's going to get in trouble with somebody here. At least that's their plan. So they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Notice, notice it's just a yes, no. Answer this question, Jesus. Should we pay the taxes or not? Now, if Jesus says, yes, pay the taxes, then, um, then there's going to be a whole group of people that are pretty upset with him. Um, if he says, no, don't pay the taxes, then there's going to be a different group, right? If he says, yes, it's the Jews that are mad at him. If he says, no, it's the Romans that are mad at him. And so they're trying to kind of trap him. Verse 15, he answers them very cleverly. It says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? So there's like an image like we have on our coins today. There's an image on the coin. And they said to him, Caesar's. So Jesus answers, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Meaning that not only, yes, you're going to be paying taxes, but guess what? You, you, you belong to God. Whose image do you bear? You bear God's image. You need to live a life for him. Side note, apologetics is good. Studying this stuff is good. But you need to be living your life daily for Jesus Christ as a Christian. This is my calling and I can't lose sight of it because I'm, I'm storing up all this intellectual stuff I can use in my discussions with people to try to point them to Christ, I I need to make sure I'm also living a a life that's just following Jesus every single day, full out, 100%, all that I've got for him, you know? Um, And so that's, that's Jesus's, Jesus's statement, but this like really connects to Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed. And finally, at the end, honor to whom honor is owed. Um, And I think that this is perhaps a connection between the two teachings. Let me give you some more examples. Uh, One more from Romans, and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians, which has some really clear examples of Paul knowing about the the, the teachings of Jesus without the Gospels. Um, so here we go. Romans uh, 14, 14. 
I think that's the one I'm at, I'm at now. Yes. He says, I know and am persuaded in the, in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. But the thing here is Paul actually says, I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus. What does this mean? I think Paul is saying, I have information that's from Jesus here. I'm persuaded in Jesus that nothing's unclean in itself. Well, what's that from? Well, we have a couple passages we can go to. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19, it, Jesus is talking about food and he says, um, uh, therefore, are you also without understanding? I'm, I'm in verse 18 here. Uh, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Food can't defile me since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus, he declared all foods clean. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting. This is this is a very controversial teaching of Jesus that's explained much, much more in the rest of the Bible. Um, but but that's one verse. There's another verse I'll give you as well. It's going to be uh, Luke eleven forty one. 41. Um, he says, but give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. He's talking to Pharisees. I won't get into the whole context, but he says everything is clean for you. This is speaking about like food substances, it seems. So Paul seems to be not quoting directly, but he seems to be uh, teaching the thing he learned from these things that Jesus said that we're reading about in Luke and Mark. That's interesting. Okay, let's look at some more examples, even more clear ones, because they're in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians was a very early letter of Paul. And um, it was, like I said, written before the Gospels. And so we have, at least on pretty much everybody's estimation. First Corinthians 9, 14, we have this statement. It says in the same way, uh, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. This couldn't be clearer. The plain sense of the passage is that Paul is saying Jesus commanded this specific command that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul's familiar with the teaching of Jesus and he's passing it to the church and he separates it from his own teaching. He does this throughout his epistles. You know, he'll be dealing with a controversy in the church. He doesn't go like, well, Jesus said this and Jesus, he just occasionally says like, oh, the Lord said this, uh, but he doesn't just make it up as he goes along. There's problems he was dealing with where he could have easily solved them by just saying, well, the Lord taught this, like if he was going to fabricate stuff, but rather he doesn't do that. Occasionally though, we get this, right? The Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should make their living by the gospel. This connects with Luke chapter uh, 10, verse 7. Jesus gives instructions to the ones he's sending out. They're going out to do ministry, to preach, preaching ministry. And in, he says, remain in the same house, where, wherever, whoever will house them when they arrive in a town. He says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. This is a statement like, hey, you're laboring in the gospel. You deserve that. Go ahead and partake of it. Now, this is not excuse for pastors and leaders to take advantage of others or to demand random strangers give them money or to um, make themselves rich off the back of the church. Like that's all totally not on the table here. But it is a command that uh, Paul's aware of in 1 Corinthians 9, 14. It's confirmed in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. And then we have another passage in uh, 1 Timothy 5, 18. And this is really interesting stuff. I love 1 Timothy 5, 18. It says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, I'll just back it up for you to look at on the screen here. The context here is talking about those who are serving in ministry, receiving basically pay. I mean, it wouldn't have been like a paycheck. It would have been like food or shelter, that kind of thing, you know, provision. 
based upon them serving in ministry, especially those who are laboring in preaching and teaching. I mean, this is what the text says. But look at how he justifies it in verse 18. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's something the scripture says. This is a quote from the Old Testament. And the principle is, it's kind of neat. It's uh, Deuteronomy 25.4. But the principle is you have, a, you have an ox and they're, uh, they're yoked and they're plowing the field, you know, or they're treading out the grain. They're doing some, some sort of task, farming task. And you could put a muzzle on that ox so that while they're working, they're not able to eat the food that's in front of them. So you're muzzling the ox when it treads out the grain. Actually, Deuteronomy says you can't do that because that's kind of animal cruelty, right? Like, dude, animals right there in front of the food, just let it eat. Let it eat as it needs. It's a general principle that we don't, we don't have that kind of cruelty. But it's quoted here by Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 to say, hey, like, if you're not going to muzzle then the ox, well, don't muzzle your pastor. You know, don't muzzle, like, those who are doing the work of the ministry and be like, yeah, you're supposed to starve to death in order to serve the Lord. That's, that's not the godly principle. But then we get to the good part. 1 Timothy 5.18. We know he quotes scripture, Deuteronomy, holy inspired scripture, right? And he, and he introduces it by the scripture says, and then quotes it. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. But then it just has that cute little word, and the laborer deserves his wages. This second quote is not from the Old Testament. This second quote is actually from the gospels. We're quoting Luke 10.7. Does that mean that the author of 1 Timothy knew Luke? Or does it mean perhaps that Luke and the author of 1 Timothy both knew the teachings of Jesus and calls him scripture, calls the teachings and proclamations of Jesus scripture. It seems to be that right here in the first century, we have a, a New Testament author calling another New Testament author scripture, which is kind of a big deal. Not the focus of today, but kind of a really big deal. Okay, another example from 1 Corinthians. That's 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. And we get this phrase, we've seen it before in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And we get into this, we've kind of read through this, but look at the phrase, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Again, he's saying this isn't just a tradition about Jesus, it's tradition from Jesus. It's something Jesus actually said. So we kind of went through this, but I want you to remember the order. Um, it was on the night he was betrayed, so it was nighttime, right? He took bread, right? And then after he had given thanks, then he breaks the bread and then he makes the statements about what it means. Now let's look at the gospels and their accounting of this. Mark 14, 22, it says as they were eating, he took bread. Okay, after he takes the bread, he blesses it. After blessing it, he breaks it and he gives it to them. After giving it to them, he, he explains it. Take, this is my body. Then he does the same thing. The cup, it's a separate event. Takes the cup, given thanks for it, gave it to them. They drank it. Then he says to them, this is my blood. So that's consistent with not only the details, but even the order of the events, even the, some of the same words that are being used. But it's not a quote. It's not a quote. That's interesting, right? It's, 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 it's just because it's historical, I think, is the implication, right? Um, if you don't want to take the Bible as the inspired word of God, like you still get the fact that this happened. Matthew 26, 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. After blessing the bread, he breaks it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He blesses it, he breaks it, he distributes it, he explains it. And he took the cup and when he given thanks 
he gave it to them saying drink of it so he does the same thing takes the cup he blesses it he he gives it to them he explains it this is the same event same orders um luke 22 19 and 20 it's the same thing you could look it up on your own there um the point here is um you can't chop up the bible okay it doesn't actually work because there's this interconnectivity throughout the new testament these are separate documents written by different people, but they're obviously attesting to a real true historical figure. And for those who want to say that Paul didn't know anything about Jesus, he seemed to know a great deal about Jesus. And this is just the things that we know that he knew, right? This is just the stuff that survives in his letters. Um, there's uh, other people would say uh, um, that Paul, by the way, I'm going to go to your guys' questions in just a minute. So go ahead and make sure you're loading those in the Q&A. We might have a slightly shorter stream today. Um, I'll definitely keep it under an hour. At least that's the plan. Um, but my last thought is this. Some say Paul never met Jesus, never could have met Jesus, so that he only heard about Jesus after the fact. Um, but we know that Paul was a contemporary of Jesus. He lived at the same time as, as Christ. We don't. I mean, he didn't say he met Jesus. He didn't talk about times he saw Jesus. We know, though, that Paul was a Pharisee, a devout Pharisee, who had been raised in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, but he was raised in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the city where Jews would go three times a year for the Feasts of Israel. I have videos on the Feasts of Israel that you might want to check out. They're just really neat to look at. Um, the, uh, the Pharisees would definitely go to Jerusalem. We even read in some of his later letters how he talks about how I have to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. Like So he would, he would go, to, um, go to Jerusalem for these feasts. Those feasts are the moments when Jesus had his most public ministry. And he would even debate the Pharisees, the same group that Paul was part of. What I'm saying is we don't have clear statements that Paul knew Jesus. What we do have, what we do have is um, a lot of good reasons to think that Jesus and Paul would have definitely been in the same city at the same times. And he would have been dealing with like the specific group that Paul was part of, the Pharisees. The debate would have been happening there. So even if Paul wasn't in that there at that moment, when the Pharisees went later to go tell each other about how bad Jesus was or argue about it, Paul would have been part of that group for sure. I think that that seems undeniable. I recently had a chance to talk to a scholar and I asked him this question, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Bowman. And I asked him the question, I said, do you know of any compelling argument that Paul didn't, you know, couldn't have, wouldn't have known who Jesus was even while Jesus was alive and maybe encountered him in Jerusalem? And he, he just said, no, he didn't know a single one because I'm just trying to like, why would you not think that he had a chance to encounter Jesus? He's even in Jerusalem at the stoning of Stephen in the early church. He, we know he was right there, you know. All right, so that's Paul the Apostle. We're going to go to your guys' questions, and I will give preference, if possible, to questions where they're maybe challenging me, but I'm, I'm not going to make, up, make stuff up. If I don't know the answer, I'm, I'll just tell you I don't know. Um, but I hope, I hope I can help you guys out. That's the whole purpose of this ministry is to help people out. So uh, Kaylin Van Conant says a question. By the way, hi, Kaylin. Um, hey, Mike, uh, how did Paul go from extreme murderer to a guy who wrote most of the New Testament outside of the three blind days? What gave him authority? Um, I mean, you know, according to Paul, it was Jesus himself who gave him this authority and this calling to do these things. But there's, there's more information there. Um, we not only have Jesus commissioning him based upon Paul's writings, but Paul himself went to Israel at one point. Read about this in Galatians 1, I believe it is. Paul goes to Jerusalem years after he's uh, saved and he's walking with Christ and he's telling people about the Lord and he meets with Peter and James because he wants to like confirm with them the things that he's been doing and explain to them about what God's been doing amongst the Gentiles and all this. And Peter and James, who are pillars in the church, they affirm Paul 
and they see, Paul, you have been called to go to the Gentiles, just like Peter was called to go to the Jews. And so we have, um, you know, it, I'll put it this way, even from a secular standpoint, like if there's any authorities in the church, it's going to be the, um, the, the immediate disciples of Jesus after his death and resurrection. It'll be the disciples. Those same people affirmed Paul. And in first, I think it's first Peter we have, or it's second Peter, we have writings where, um, Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. And he says, um, uh, some people twist Paul's writings as they also do the rest of scripture. So we have confirmation from both sources there, I think. Um, insects are cool has a question. Um, Isaiah seven fourteen talks about a young woman, not a virgin. Also, wasn't it supposed to be a sign for Ahaz? So why is it mentioned in Matthew? Um, I will do, this is going to be more than I can unpack today. And it's certainly more than I can remember off the top of my head, but I want to do a video on this one day, like the, the specifically the resurrection passage, the, the Hebrew word Alma, uh, or is it there's Alma and Bethula. There's these two different words. I'll give you the short answer though. Um, the short answer is this. Alma refers to a young maiden who is most often a virgin. Most often, not always, most often a virgin. It is rather the context of Isaiah 7 taken with Isaiah 8 and 9 that gives us the idea that this is about the virgin birth. Um, so it's if you just read Isaiah 7.14, you're not going to get enough details to answer this question. It's reading Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. Um, and that's what I want to do in one of these live streams. Maybe take the virgin birth on and talk about it. There's a bunch of questions people have about that. So um, I hope that helps a little bit. Alma, though, it doesn't mean not virgin. <laughs> Typically, Alma, it means a young maiden who's unmarried, which which would refer to someone who's a virgin. Um, we have a very sexually wicked culture where when you say an unmarried woman, there's no assumption of her virginity. Uh, but that was not their culture. And we shouldn't anachronistically read our culture onto theirs when we do that. Um, okay, Kathy B. Good has a question. Matthew 10, 23, what is Mike's take on until the Son of Man comes in this scripture? Thanks. Um, let me see. I'll, I'll go pull it up and see if, if I have something maybe thoughtful I can share with you on it. Um, Matthew 10, 23. And I spelled something wrong. New. Okay. Um, when they persecute you in one town, flee to in the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Okay, so I, I do have a thought on this, Kathy. Um, some people would, you read this verse by itself and you're thinking, um, hey, you know, Jesus was supposed to come back before they even finished getting through Israel. Of course, that's confusing because in Acts, he tells them to go way beyond Israel, right? He says, you know, you'll be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So he's, so that's confusing, right? I think the, the, the issue that helps is the context of Matthew 10. If we back up a little bit, we read, this is not the end of Jesus's ministry. And it's not a prediction about the end of his ministry. It's so, so it says here, the, uh, these 12, the 12 that Jesus called his apostles at some point during the three years of Jesus's ministry, he sends them out to go into towns, town to town. They're supposed to go in. They've learned what Jesus teaches. And now they go out on a mission to teach other people the things Jesus has taught. They don't really fully know the gospel yet. They don't know about the death and resurrection yet. They're just repeating the words of Jesus that we read about in the gospels. This is cool because it means that the apostles had to learn, memorize, and repeat the teachings of Jesus, even within Jesus's uh, ministry time. So these uh, 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, uh, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you've received without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold, uh, no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics. Uh, or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And as we read on, we're getting this. Jesus is giving instructions. Hey, he's he's not dying and rising yet, right? He's just saying, go out ahead of me into these towns. Tell them the message that I've sent. You're going to perform even miracles. You're going to do these things. And I will come after you. And I will... Um, uh, I will be there before you even finish getting through Israel. That's the bottom line. This isn't about the, G the second coming of Jesus. This is about the first coming of Jesus. I'll, I'll read on. Um, that's my understanding of it. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, he goes on. Da, 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 da. Um, oh, here's an interesting side point. He says, truly, I say to you, if the town rejects, rejects them, um, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Later, Jesus repeats these words specifically about Chorazin and Bethsaida. So these are local Israel towns that he's talking about. Um, he talks about how persecution will come and they'll go through all sorts of things. And then the son of man will come uh, before they finish going through the towns. So my understanding of this passage, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I've got this incorrect. My understanding is this is not about the second coming, but it is meant to teach us something for those of us who are serving the Lord and we're waiting on his return. There are lessons for us to learn here, but it was like a practice run of preaching and teaching that the disciples went through um, during Jesus's uh, time here on earth. Um, do, do, do. Next question. If you have not subscribed, you might want to do it. I try to put out content every, usually two videos a week, uh, generally speaking, teaching theology and apologetics and trying to do, engage in the culture and what's really going on in the real world right now and to do it in a way that hopefully honors Christ in, in, in content and character. Um, here we go. This is from Wei and M. Um, not sure if I pronounced that correctly. Um, it says, being born under the law, does this really imply a human having to be of Jewish origin? I, yeah, I do think it does. Uh, um, Jews are under the law. You could actually, you know how you can check this, and I, I, I don't think I'll do it right now because it's boring for you guys. <laughs> uh, if, you, if you do a, a, a search in the Bible on the phrase under the law, Paul consistently uses the phrase under the law as referring to Jewish people. They're under the law. Um, and so that's... Yeah, that's just consistent. Um, yeah, uh, there's your answer. So Mark Christian says, after born again, um, do we need to live a perfect sinless life or is it constant repentance, forgiveness, and our journey with Christ starts and we learn and make our faith stronger? Um, Mark, my understanding of that, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend like I have all the theology figured out and worked out in every way. I, I wish I did. My understanding of this is that um, uh, that repentance and restoration in my relationship with God, like this sort of the quality of my relationship with God right now, that has to be a regular thing. But I don't think that means that if I sin, I lose my salvation and I have to get it back. I think it's like with marriage, like me and my, my wife are married. If we have some falling out, we need to deal with this. We need to get reconciled, but we're not divorced as a result of the falling out. So I think it's about a re it's about restoring relationship, not restoring salvation when a believer sins. That would be, that would be my understanding of this. Um, and I'm sure a lot more should and could be said about that, but that's how I get it. Jordan Callahan says, what is the conflict of the empty tomb? Why is it only a majority agreement among scholars? You know what, Jordan, I'm, I'm seriously interested in the same question and I don't know. Um, I don't really know why 
um, I'll put it this way. I, I could easily say uh, the empty tomb is, is really good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And so a scholar who doesn't believe in Jesus will naturally be, um, you know, resistant to admit that the empty tomb is a historical fact. Um, I could easily say that, but I don't know these guys. I don't want to theorize about their secret motivations. What I want to do is hear their best argument against the empty tomb. I have literally not heard it. I don't know of a good argument against the empty tomb. A good one. There are some, but I just don't know of any good ones. And I try to deal with the ones I did know about in the video I did recently on evidence for the empty tomb. That was like a week, two weeks ago, something like that. It wasn't very long ago. Um, So you might check that out. Yeah, why is it only majority agreement? I don't know. Maybe someone who knows the scholarship better than I do could tell us. What is what are the best scholarly reasons, you know, to doubt the empty tomb? I mean, yeah. Shauna Matson says, uh, hey Mike, what are your thoughts on Acts 21, 17 through 26? What do you think Paul's reaction and the vow of the four men tell us about how Paul viewed Torah as a Jewish believer? Let's go to that passage. I don't know about you guys, but I I I like doing this and getting to just go right to the text and uh and just look at it with you that's i think it's neat i think it honors the scripture and it's it's fun (laughs) and helpful okay so it says when you come to jerusalem uh the brothers received us gladly on the following day paul went in with us to james and all the elders were present after um there we go just checking after greeting them he related one by one the things that god had done among the gentiles through his ministry and when they heard it they glorified god and they said to him you see brother how many thousands there were uh, thousands there are among the jews of those who have believed they are all zealous for the law um, so the jews who were previously obeying the law are still obeying the law not that the gentiles are um, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walking according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have, let me back up before I tell you what Paul did. The reason this is, the, the controversy here is not, should Gentiles obey the law? That is not the controversy. The controversy is, is Paul teaching Jews to stop obeying the law? They've already dealt with this issue of Gentiles and Gentiles are not being called to obey the law in the book of Acts, right? We, we, in specifically in Acts, they're not being asked to obey the law of the Old Testament. They're, now, moral laws and just truth of following Christ and purity and all that, absolutely, but not the Old Testament law. However, circumcision and being under the law, the question is, is Paul telling Jews to forsake this? Is that his teaching? And that's the real debate. So uh, here they say, let's do this. Um, what is to be done then? Uh, they will certainly hear you've come. Do therefore, verse 23, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what we have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who've believed, we've sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain um, from what has been sacrificed to idols and blood and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. So as far as the Gentiles, like that's it. That's the end of the story. They're not, we're not putting them under the law, but we want to show them, Paul, that you still observe Torah. Now, Paul in his other writings, he does this. He takes them and he purifies himself, does the head head thing. He, he even talked about being at Passover, being at the feasts of Israel, like I mentioned earlier, Paul in many ways kept the law. Now it seems like he made exceptions to this when he was amongst certain Gentile groups as a way of showing them that the gospel did not require them to obey the law. Um, so the real debate for me then is, 
as a Jewish believer who's been raised under the law, if you come to Christ, do you continue to stay under the law? And I'm inclined to think that I would. If I was a Jewish believer, if I was, if Jesus, you know, Paul says, like, if you're circumcised, don't seek to be uncircumcised. I think he's talking about being under the law. And if he says, if you're uncircumcised, don't seek to be circumcised. He's saying, hey, if you're not already doing it, don't do it. Um, so there seems to be this liberty in the Christian uh, in the Christian view about obey, obedience to the law or not, depending on kind of your conscience, Romans 14, and how you've been raised so far up until this point. And it's super important not to imply that obedience to the law is required for salvation. Um, there's my, my thoughts on that. I hope that that has been helpful for you. Last question for tonight. This is from EMC. So uh, this is a Christian here. Great. Thanks for joining me. And thanks for joining me, everybody, by the way. Uh, He says, when Jesus went and overturned tables in the temple, was he not expressing anger regardless of of justification? Was Jesus' measurement of personal sin different than ours? Okay, when Jesus overturned tables, is he expressing anger? I don't don't think we can derive that from the text. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong here. I'm trying to remember the text loaded in my head here, you know. It says he made a whip of cords, which may have just been used on the animals to scare them out of the room. I don't know. Um, he, uh, he overturned the tables. Now, can you be physically active like that and confrontive without being angry? Well, yeah, I mean, you could. So maybe he was angry, maybe he wasn't. I'm comfortable either way. There are other times Jesus was angry, right? We read about it in the text of scripture. But anger, according to scripture, is not a sin in and of itself. Anger is often temptation to sin, though. And that's where I get in trouble, right? When I get angry, I tend to exaggerate. I tend to do it wrong. I tend to say it wrong. I tend to, to I don't shut a door. I slam it. I don't say your name. I try your name. You know, <laughs> I don't just say my point or make my point. I exaggerate it. And then I cause all kinds of problems. So the anger is not the issue. It's But the anger will often present temptation for those of us who are humans, <laughs> who are normal, Um and so when I'm angry, I, I tend to be very quiet because I don't want, I don't, not because I'm giving people the silent treatment. The silent treatment is just an immature expression of anger. I'm talking about protecting others from my harsh words or from my cruelty that I might express in anger. Um, so that that's a whole different kind of issue. Um, yeah. Was Jesus's measurement of personal sin different than ours? No, I, I think Jesus could be angry without sinning. And so can you. Jesus did it every time. I know I have not done that every time. Um Yes. And by the way, I'll, I'll give you as a note, uh, Cameron, Cameron Bertuzzi from Capturing Christianity says to tell you guys, uh, by the way, Christianity is true. <laughs> and if you haven't checked it out yet, we still have our, our playlist of videos answering the atheists coming out. I'll put a link in the description once this live stream's over to that playlist because I'm hoping everybody will check it out. We want feedback on it. Do you guys like that? Is it useful? Is it fruitful? And for those who've stuck with me this whole time, before I say goodbye, I will say this. Um, I am making this ministry my full-time thing now. Um, and, uh, this is the way it's kind of worked out in my life. It's like, I don't really have much of a choice. Like this is kind of how I have to do it. Um, and so I'm trying to go full time. And that means that I've now, I'm now accepting donations. So on my website, biblethinker.org, biblethinker.org, that's the website. I am accepting donations that's there to just support me and my wife so that we can continue living because the worker's worthy of his wages here and, um, and continue producing this content. I'm really sensitive to this whole money issue and people might think that I'm trying to get rich off the back of Christians or something like that. I assure you that's not the case. Um, but, but I'll be honest, like if you don't trust me, you shouldn't support me anyways. Like if you think I'm a liar, like you should never give money to someone you don't trust. Um, at least, at least have a, a basic sense of respect for, and you don't believe in their ministry. So, but if you do believe in it and you do want to support it, um, 
it, there is a real need now and I very much appreciate it. Yeah. Lord bless you guys. Appreciate your prayers as I keep getting ready for this debate with uh, Matt Dillahunty. And thank you for my mods being out there in the in the mod section of the, the chat over here somewhere. Appreciate you guys. Um, and we'll be back. Um, yes, I'm not making promises. I got other stuff coming up soon. So just stay tuned. Make sure you click like uh, if you can and share this content if it helps you. And then make sure to subscribe and click notifications. So you'll get a notification when I make a video. Otherwise, you might be like, where'd he go? And you just didn't get a notification. Thank you.